Uh, while you're turning in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4, uh, let me just take a second to give you a heads up of where we're going. Um, you know, in God's providence, we, we're kind of bumped up against um, a monumental anniversary in many ways. Um, next Sunday, along with uh, much of the rest of the Protestant world, uh, we will be celebrating uh, the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Obviously, no single event in history has one single event as its beginning. There's history there, obviously, but we celebrate October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses to that castle church door in Wittenberg as, the, as marking the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, this year, next Tuesday, is the 500th anniversary of that event. Um, so starting next Sunday, in light of, of that, um, because in God's providence, that's where we are in our calendar, uh, we will begin next Sunday, Lord willing, a five-week series on uh, what I've historically called the bumper stickers of the Reformation. You may have even used, heard me use that term. I'll explain that another time. Uh, that's not the point today. Um, but uh, that's where we are. I, I would actually love to split this passage into a couple of different sermons. But since, uh, since God's providence is what it is and the calendar is what it is, we will abide by that. Um, so Philippians chapter 4, we will finish uh, the book of Philippians this morning, uh, beginning in verse 10. And we'll read through the end of the chapter as, as you are familiar and accustomed. Now let me ask that you stand as we read God's word together. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am, I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, I can do all things through Christ, through Him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Uh, Father, even as we just a minute ago sang, grant to us, Almighty Lord, to read and mark Your holy word. 
its truths with meekness to receive, and by its holy precepts live. Through Christ we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. If you were to define the word content, how would you define it? If you, if you were to define the word, if, if you're thinking, okay, I'm gonna, I gotta give a definition, you can't Google it, you can't pull up your phone and use the dictionary app on your phone. I want you, in your head, if you're defining the word content, how would you define it? Would you, would you include perhaps some sort of reference to your happiness? That the word, the word happy sort of show up in your definition somewhere. Or, or maybe it would be the, the absence of needs. Or, perhaps better, the absence of wants. Jeremiah Burroughs, a participant in the Westminster Assembly in the 1640s, a great Puritan, uh, wrote a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And in it, he defines Christian contentment as this, that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Some of you are note takers and you're dying for me to repeat that. Others of you heard that definition and like me are thinking, I don't ever want to hear that again. Because it does not describe me in any way, shape, or form. There's, there's nothing about that definition that I really, quite honestly, care to hear. If you're dying to hear it, I'll give it to you later. But there's nothing in that definition that suits Jeff. There's nothing in this sweet, quiet, trusting in God's fatherly disposal in every circumstance. I don't, that's, that's not how I operate. That's not how most of us operate, most likely. Paul's addressed another heart condition earlier in this chapter. He's already dealt with anxiety. He's already already addressed that condition earlier in, in chapter 4. The, the difference between anxiety and discontent. Anxiety is you know, primarily fear and worry about uh, an event in the future or circumstances over which you have zero control. Things that are, are totally... I mean, we worry about some of the silliest things sometimes. We do that. Here, Paul, however, deals with being discontent, that, that, that struggle, that frustration with my present circumstances. I actually thought about, and, and perhaps in hindsight probably should have, but I almost included as an affirmation of faith in our uh, bulletin earlier in the service um, that we would recite together the 11th question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What are God's works of providence? God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all His creatures and all their actions. Discontent says, God, you're not doing a very good job of that. 
being discontent actually looks at God and says, you either don't care, or you don't know, or you're not able. Like, look at my condition, God. Do, do, you, really, do you really think this is what I deserve? Do you really think this is where I belong? To be discontent actually looks at God's providence and says, I, don't, I actually don't trust that. I actually don't trust God's loving care, His holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all His creatures and all their actions. God's, God's either thoughtless or He's stingy. You know the feeling. I, there's no way to describe all the possible ways. For me, it's, it's, it's walking through Bridge Street when they put all the sweet cars out in the middle. Every now and then you'll, you'll walk by and there's, they've got these sweet BMWs or Audis sitting out there in the middle of Bridge Street. I mean, if you walk by and there's kind of slobber on the driver's side window, I was just in front of you. I was the last guy that went by there. All the things that, that make us discontent. My yard has too many trees, and so I have constantly dealing with leaves and branches and junk falling out of the ground, falling down to the ground. I'm constantly cleaning it up. Or my yard doesn't have enough trees, so it's too hot to be out there at all. Take your pick. We're discontent about one of them. It's whichever one we have more often than not, quite honestly. My den's too small. My kitchen's too small. My bathroom's too big. I, take your pick. You, you, we, we can find any number of things about this life that make us discontent. Maybe you don't say anything. Maybe you don't actually voice that thought out loud. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, I mean... It's, it's sort of like that scene in The Princess Bride uh, when um, Buttercup is complaining, I've gotten married, and, and the man in black says, no, it never happened. You, you didn't say I do. Well, no, we sort of skipped that part. And he says this, if you didn't say it, then it didn't happen. We think, well, if, if I don't say it, then I'm not really discontent. Maybe if I don't actually say it out loud, then I'm, I'm not really discontent. It's, it's like that. If I don't say it, then, then it didn't actually happen. Then it's not actually real. Burroughs' definition, it's a frame of spirit. It's inward. It, does, it doesn't have to be said to be real. It's in our hearts. It's, it's, it's inside of us. The contented heart can say with the hymn writers, whatever my God ordains is right, His holy will abideth. I will be still whatever He does and follow where He guideth. And later in that same hymn, I take content what He has sent. The contented heart can say with William Cooper, God moves in a mysterious way His wonders to perform. And I trust those. I trust Him in that. Notice Paul says in verse 11 that he's learned in whatever condition he finds himself to be content. In plenty and in want, in 
joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, filled or hungry, humble means or prosperity, he has learned the art of being content. He uses that word actually both in verse 11 and in verse 12. Twice he makes clear that he has learned it. Contentment isn't natural. Contentment isn't a natural thought. It's, it's a learned, we have to learn to be content. It's not something we're born with. In fact, we're born quite the opposite. We're, we're born with a spirit that, that distrusts God. We're not born with that, that frame of spirit that trusts in God's providence. We're born with a heart that's selfish and demanding and never satisfied and, and never settled and never happy. Paul says, I've, I've learned to be content. Whatever, whatever condition I'm in, in any and every circumstance, how do you learn to be content? Paul gives us a hint. I mean, he's, he's experienced it. I mean, in part, we learn contentment through experience. Paul has had plenty. Paul has had everything at his hands. He's had a, a full stomach. He's had a roof over his head. He's, has, he's had friends around him and clothes to wear and books to read and all sorts of things. He's, he's, he's had all of that. He knows what it's like not to lack. He knows exactly what it's like to have whatever he wants, whatever he needs at any given moment. He's experienced it. He knows what it's like to know where you'll lay your head at night. To have food on his plate. But he also knows exactly what it's like not to have any of those things. He knows what it's like to be shipwrecked. He knows, knows what it's like to be, to be beaten, to be whipped, to be hungry, to, be, to, to not know where he's going to sleep at night, to, to not know where he's going to lay his head but the ground beneath his feet, to be alone and in prison, to be hungry. You can read through the book of Acts and you see Paul's life. He's experienced plenty and want. He's experienced filled and hungry. He's experienced wealth and poverty. In fact, the church in Philippi would know this all too well because when he planted the church in Philippi. He did so out of prison. He was arrested and beaten and mistreated in Philippi and thrown in jail and then ultimately released. And one of the, one of the first members of that core group was the Philippian jailer. He had been in the dark, dank, innermost part of that prison no pillow, no comfy bed, food rations, surely. You know, we think we can, we think we'll be able to handle any situation. Deep down inside, there's a part of us that thinks, well, I mean, I, okay, I've got what I've got. And if I had it all taken away tomorrow, I'd be okay. Or if I had it all doubled tomorrow, I would be okay. We think that, that deep down inside, we, we could handle whatever situation comes our way. 
with poise and honor and dignity, giving honor and glory to God Himself. We always think that if, it's, if I lost it all, I can handle that loss and trust in God's sovereign will. Turn with me to Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 30. Just to, just to see that, that we don't know I mean, part of, of learning contentment through experience is we really don't know how we will react, how we will, we will respond in any given situation. Proverbs 30, these words of agar. Verse 7, Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of God. This wise man, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writing a portion of Scripture, has to admit there's a chance that if I'm filled, I'll cease to trust in you, God. I'll trust in myself. I'll trust in my stuff. I'll trust in the things that I have. And yet, he also has to admit, if it's all taken away from me, there's a chance I could steal. There's a chance that I would be tempted to, to steal and I would yield to that temptation and therefore drag your name through the mud. He's not exactly sure how he would react were he to have it all taken away or have it all doubled or tripled overnight? Truth is, contentment is best learned in part through our experiences. I think if I were going to d define contentment on my own, without having done any study and preparation for this. Let's, let's assume I haven't done anything to prepare for this passage. How would I, I would probably include the word enough in my definition of content. But it would be that sense of enough, you know when the waitress comes and asks if you want dessert, and your answer is more like a laugh than a no thank you. The laugh means I've... I couldn't get a cookie. I mean, if you gave me a chocolate chip cookie and a plunger, I could not get that cookie down my throat. I'm that full. I would have that word enough in my definition of content. When you, when you finally push back from the table and you're like, I'm, that's enough, but, which is really more like a tap out, I'm done, than, than adequate or sufficient. There's no more room. There's, there's nothing left I could possibly get into my stomach. You know, Apple, you've heard me say this a thousand times, Apple makes bazillions of dollars every single year making you unhappy, discontent with the thing they released last year that was supposed to solve all of your problems. John D. Rockefeller's famous response, how much money is enough? Just a little more. That's how we come out of the womb, 
We come out of the womb discontent. We come out of the womb wanting just a little more. And so we get a little more. And a little more never actually comes. Because as soon as you get a little more, you want a little more more. We think of contentment as as coming along when we can finally push back from the table or push back from the shopping counter or push away from the the fancy Audi in Bridge Street and say, that's enough, I'll stop right there. Agar recognizes that sometimes the problem isn't a lack of something. Sometimes the problem is a bunch of it. Sometimes the problem isn't the absence of something, it's having too many of them. That we still wrestle with discontent. We never really know how we will respond in want or in plenty. Paul has learned to be content. Contentment is is in part learned through experience. But experience isn't enough. Experience alone won't solve our problems because notice Paul calls our attention to another need. It's it's not just that we learn through our experience. But the natural man isn't content regardless of his experience. Paul says he's also learned contentment, verse 13, through Christ. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Now, there are verses that are notoriously ripped out of context and used to mean any number of things. We misapply them, we misinterpret them, we misuse them. This verse has to be in the top five. I would rather, I would, I, quite honestly, I would rather it have something to say about me running a four-minute mile I would love for that verse to mean I could hit my drives 300 yards. I would love for that verse to mean I could understand Isaac Newton and Albert Einstein. I would love for this verse to be um, God's blank check. Well, I mean, He's told me I can do anything through Christ who strengthens me, so I can suddenly run really fast. I can not only run a four-minute mile, but I could run a marathon if I wanted to, and I could hit my drives a really long way and, and nail my sand wedge to within inches of the hole, read every putt accurately, and understand every book I read, every sentence I ever read. That's not at all what this verse means. It's not... God's blank check to do whatever you can make up to to do through Christ who strengthens me. It's not that kind of a verse at all. The context matters. The verses around it matter. The all things in verse 13 are the all circumstances in verse 12. In fact, verse 12 in Greek actually says, in each thing and in all things. And so then Paul turns around and uses, I can do all things in each and everything, in every circumstance, in any and every circumstance. You ever read any philosophy? You ever studied any philosophy? I never did much. I didn't understand it all. There were Greek philosophers, the Stoics. We, we, for us, Stoic is straight-faced, immovable, 
uh, impassive, no emotion. Well, that's probably fairly accurate. They, they believed that reason could, could get you through anything. That, that reason, if, if your reason took control of your emotions so that you just didn't bother with emotions at all, uh, that, that your reason can sort of stand guard over your heart, block out your emotion, protect, protect them from uh, emotional distress. Paul's actually kind of stolen their language, their terminology in this passage. For the Stoic, he would be self-sufficient. My reason stands guard over my heart so that I don't respond emotionally. Paul says contentment isn't self-sufficient. It's Christ-sufficient. It's not self-reliant, it's Christ-reliant. Contentment isn't you need your reason to stand guard over your heart. It's you need Christ to stand guard over your heart. He's learned contentment. He can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. That sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit that freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition is learned through experience, but found only in Christ's strength. Paul can be content in any circumstance because Christ is sufficient for him. And if he has Christ, then it doesn't matter how many cars he has in his driveway, how large his kitchen is, how big his bank account is, how fancy his... It doesn't matter. None of that matters anymore. Contentment's learned through experience. It's found grounded only in Christ. But notice for Paul, being content doesn't mean being ungrateful. We're in the South. There's there's an art to writing thank you notes. I've never learned it. But there is one. You know, it's entirely possible to say thank you in a way that sounds like you almost disdain people for giving you gifts. You know, it's actually possible to write a thank you note that that actually makes it sound like you're begging for more. There's an art to writing a thank you note. You have to be kind of careful. You don't want to sound like you're, you're ungrateful, but you also don't want to sound like they sure could have done more. Paul writes in this passage a model thank you note. He actually models thankfulness to us in the way he writes this passage. He describes his contentment, his trust in Christ. He's, he's, Christ is sufficient for him, and, and with Christ, his circumstances don't matter. His possessions don't matter. Paul writes this model Thank you note. Notice he says in verse 18, gifts are great. I have all I need. I've received full payment, verse 18, and more. you've, You've given me great gifts. I'm well supplied. You've sent more than you should have. You have been very great. What you've sent fully satisfies all my need here in prison in Rome. You've, you've given 
great gifts. It has this connotation, I'm well supplied, not just of volume, but even in the accuracy and applicability of the gift itself. That it was sort of right on target, that kind of, of notion. You kind of get the impression as you read this that they really didn't, they didn't care how much Paul needed. They just sent a bunch. You know, sometimes you'll, you're tempted to say, well, how much do you need? And they give you a number, and so you give them that number. It's almost like they didn't ask. And he's, he's well supplied. He's received this great gift, this fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God that Epaphroditus has brought me from you on behalf of the church in Philippi. Gifts are great, Paul says in verse 18. But notice, he says, gifts are great, but the givers are even greater. In verse 10, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. If you're using the NIV or the New American Standard, instead of at length, it says at last. That's not finally the way I would say finally. You know, with that exasperated, I'm glad you finally came around to sending me a gift. He's, you see, Paul didn't have access to things like, oh, you know, Facebook and Instagram. We know where you are all the time because you post pictures about it. We can track you. Where have you been this week? Uh, you've been here. You've been here. You've been out of town. I can tell you've not been at home. You've been on a trip. You've been working. We, we post that. Paul couldn't post on Facebook. Hey, I'm traveling on a ship between Thessalonica. He didn't have access to that. So it's not that the church in Philippi had not cared before and finally they cared. It's finally, at last, you're able to do something about it. Paul's been hard to, to catch. He's been hard to find. In fact, he says it much, as much, you were indeed concerned for me. You just had no opportunity to care for me. You had no opportunity to give. Now you do. Well, I'm stuck in a prison in Rome. I can't go anywhere. I'm not traveling. I'm, I'm here. I'm stuck. And, and now you're able to send gifts to me. They didn't have Federal Express for when it absolutely positively has to be there overnight. They've revived their concern for him. And Paul's grateful for their love and care. Even in verses 14 through 16, he praises them for their faithfulness through the years. There was a time which you Philippians, the only church supporting my missionary efforts. You were the only ones Sending me gifts. Even when I was in Thessalonica. You almost kind of get this implied. And, and, and had opportunity to provide for myself. And have others provide for You still sent gifts to me. Gifts are great. The givers are greater. But notice he says. That God is greater still. He rejoiced. Verse 10. In the Lord. They have been generous. They have sent gifts. Paul says, you've sent great gifts, and, and it, the gifts are great, 
The givers are greater, but greater still, the one who moved you to do so. The one who has provided for me through you. There's, there's a picture here that you and I have opportunities to serve and assist missionaries, to, to care for our brothers and sisters in need, to meet food and, and financial needs of those around us, to alleviate the, the pain and suffering of life in a fallen, broken world for people all around us. But God is the ultimate provider. God moves us to care. God moves us to give. And when we do, God has provided through His people. Paul rejoices in the Lord because the church at Philippi has revived their concern for Him at great length. Ultimately, Paul thanks God for being at work in them as well as in himself. God's provided for Paul through God's people. That's how God's providence so often works. But not only has has God provided for Paul, that same God, verse 19, is going to supply your needs, Philippians. He will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. They've given... Lavishly, they've given generously. Their hope and trust is not in their things, it's in Christ. Their hope and their trust, their great love is not in this world, but in the life that is to come. And God will provide for them both in this life and in the next. And when we give lavishly and generously and joyfully, we're modeling for each other and for our children that we trust God's care for the future. When we give generously, we admit that all we have comes from Him, and all we will ever have comes from Him by His all-wise, all-powerful care. Are you content? Are you trusting in God's care for His people? That's too easy. It's easy to say, yes, I trust that God provides for His people. Yes, I trust that God cares for His people. That's not really the question. Do you trust that He's providing for you? Because contentment says, not just that I trust that God cares for His people. It says, I trust that God cares for me. That He loves me. That He provides for me. That He watches over me. All we have, whatever we have, has been given to us by an all-powerful, all-loving, all-knowing God who seeks our good and His glory. So may He grow us to be a content people, thankful for His provision for us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You that You love us and that You care for us. 
Forgive us for holding more tightly to the things of this world than the world that is to come. Forgive us for trying to pick ourselves up by our own bootstraps, for trusting in our possessions, for loving our possessions too much rather than trusting in Your love for us. Father, we pray that we would find Christ to be all-sufficient. And that having Christ, whatever circumstances, whatever condition we're in, we can be content. Because Christ is all we need. Through Christ we ask. Amen.